Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS In The Now podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus on the rapidly evolving developments within Eastern Europe involving both Russia and Ukraine and the implications of these developments to the geopolitical landscape and U.S. foreign policy in the region. We are fortunate to be joined today by a subject matter expert in the geopolitical space and a member of the UBS America's Advisory Council, Admiral Jonathan Greenert. Some background on Admiral Greenert. He served in the U.S. Navy for more than 40 years, having retired in 2015 as a four-star admiral. In his final active duty role as Chief of Naval Operations, he was responsible for running the U.S. Navy, serving on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and acting as the principal naval advisor to the President and the Secretary of the Navy on questions of strategy and resource management. So, Admiral Greenert, it's a privilege to welcome you to the forum today, and thank you for sharing your expertise and perspective with both our listeners and our clients. Thank you, Dan. The pleasure is mine. Good afternoon, and I look forward to the conversation. So, of course, there is plenty to cover, and I will preface it by saying this situation in Eastern Europe, it is rapidly evolving. So maybe as a starting point, Admiral, in an effort to better understand the recent actions of the Russian Federation aimed towards Ukraine, perhaps we can begin with how we got to where we are today. So what are your thoughts around the timing and conveyed justification of this all by Russia? And do you have a sense for how this campaign is being perceived from within Russia? Maybe put another way, does there exist a wide range of support, encouragement for this action from the Russian government? government and the Russian people. Thanks, Dan. A complete answer to that question would take so long, but I think uh, it's worthwhile looking at uh, setting the stage on this, how we got here. And the point being, this didn't emerge last week where Putin got angry. It didn't happen last month when they met at the Olympics. And it didn't happen last fall when we discovered all of these troops kind of amassing at the border. This was sort of decades in the making. It's all about Putin. Uh, when we say Russia, we really should think Putin. And, and he's the key person in all of this. But if you go back decades, uh, there is a series of agreements and actions toward those agreements, which, uh, for lack of a better term, thoroughly angered Putin, uh, a person who is uh, studied in law and studied in history, and dearly loves Russia. Uh, I would go back to the Helsinki Act of 1975, uh, which recognized the borders that the, so, from Soviet action at the end of World War II, and the and Russia, the Soviets recognized would recognize human rights and the fundamental um, feeling of freedom among folks. They also uh, the Soviet Union joined the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. All of this was to codify borders, to basically bring the Soviet Union, the United States, and NATO into sort of uh, a, a, a series, of, a neighborhood of, of proper actions. Uh, this, through time, you go into the 80s, you get into the 90s, the end of the Cold War, you have the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, you have a Convention on Armed Forces in Europe to reduce uh, to lower the arm, uh, the forces within Europe. You have the Open Skies Treaty to increase the transparency of our nuclear forces in accordance with our arms, nuclear arms agreements. A key 
agreement was the Budapest Budapest memo uh, for security assurance of Ukraine. Uh, at the end of the Cold War, there was concern about where are the nukes of the former Soviet Union. In that agreement, it was agreed that the Ukraine would transfer nuclear weapons to Russia, and Russia, the United States, and the United Kingdom would respect and recognize Ukraine's territorial integrity, clearly a key item. And then there was something called the Russia-NATO Founding Act, which described how Russia and NATO would collaborate. They set a series of meetings. These all took place in the 90s, and, and most people thought, hey, this is a great thing. It stabilizes the situation in Europe. Putin saw this as just a further degradation in the security uh, of Russia. And when he took over in 2000, looking back on these, uh, through a series of actions and uh, through a series of reflections of what he could do, he sort of summarily uh, just abrogated these treaties or disregarded them altogether. And we did a similar thing. For example, we both walked away from the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Weapons Treaty. We both walked away from the Open Skies Treaty. So my point here, Dan, is there, there was this period of the 90s where deep embedded in Putin is um, my mother country is losing its security and its influence. And then we feel, we the West and NATO and the United States felt this is good for the stabilization in Europe. So we've just got two vectors going in the opposite direction. As time went on, neither one of us really complied with the spirit intent of, of some of these, in the case of Putin, most of them. Uh, you go into the 2000s and you have NATO high point is expanded uh it, it, that is, NATO expanded to what would be its high point into Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the Baltic states. Uh, we go into Iraq. Then uh, Russia goes into Georgia, um, and Russia annexes Crimea later uh, into this um, decade uh, which and this century. So these are all sort of a, a methodical degradation of security, of cooperation, of really continuing to interface uh, uh, in a meaningful manner between the United States, NATO, and Russia. Why now? Well, if you look at the situation, if you're Putin, you say, I've been, I've been looking for this for a while. The economy is bad in Russia. Uh, COVID and the supply chain that hurt them as well. Uh, Russian elites, the oligarchy, uh, just got too much power, both in the economy and in the government, and more importantly, in his eyes, in the government. They had too much influence. Uh, you have the Navalny situation, the uh, dissident, uh, his trial, and things were just not looking good and brought more attention on human rights. Uh, and then if you look at us, as Putin sees us, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Trump and Biden administration, uh, a lot of domestic issues, covid Afghanistan departure, the political divisions that we have, inflation, Iran, and how things are going in the JCPOA and, and the degradation there, and of course, China. Uh, in our last presidential election, foreign policy, uh, we just showed no interest. We, the citizens of the United States, and if you remember the debates, if you look at the party platforms, foreign policy was not in there. NATO was adrift. Germany agreed to build the Nord Stream 2. We have a new chancellor coming into uh, Germany, and uh, we have a new prime minister. Uh, we have Brexit. 
all of these distractions, degradations and that, it, it sort of comes up to if the opportunity presents itself, um, he is going to continue on what has been, uh, in his mind, Putin's mind, and he's been fairly explicit in this, a strategy to reclaim or to to improve the security of Russia. And so it seemed like uh, late 2021 and early 2022 uh, was a time he thought it was appropriate to act. How do the Russian people see this? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're an elitist, probably part of the oligarchy, you may be a little worried about this because of the sanctions that we put on banks, on industry, and on people, well, that's them. Most of their money and the billions of dollars is outside of Russia, uh, so uh, for obvious reasons. And so that's a big worry of theirs. Uh, security, the security of Russia has now overwhelmed the, uh, if you will, the, the country's domestic, uh, not only domestic, but really their agenda. And uh, that, that takes away their influence, uh, the elites. There's probably going to result in a continued brain drain, if you will, from Russia uh, due to this whole issue that we're just not moving ahead uh, in economically, and, and it's just not necessarily a good place in, in the economic sense. So people will leave, as they have been. Less technology, bad for business. If you're a middle-class Russian, uh, what you might see and be worried about is the fact that for the last decade, They've had the Internet. They've had the openness of the Internet. They can order things online. Uh, they're liking this. They can do things like uh, use rideshare. And the openness was improving in the press and otherwise. All of this starts to degrade now because of the issues overriding on security itself. So uh, some say, well, if the body bags start coming back from the Ukraine, they're going to wonder why are we over there? Uh, and the old quagmire might start setting in. And then lastly, they might start asking uh, the question, I thought Ukrainians were actually Russians. So why are we over there fighting uh, our brothers and sisters or our relatives? Uh, so this could be, uh, as many say, a really bad idea uh, for Putin, depending on how far it goes and in which direction it goes. Well, Admiral, it is, of course, important to have context, background, how we got to where we are today. So thank you very much for outlining that and for sharing some perception of this all by those within Russia, maybe running a bit further with perception. How do you believe this campaign of the Russian Federation is being perceived and or interpreted by NATO member nations, namely the United States, a perhaps a rising global power such as China, and even long-standing antagonistic regimes such as those of Iran and even North Korea? Yeah, uh, that's a good question, Dan. Uh, I think NATO is rightfully so concerned because uh, try to imagine if you took, uh, if Putin is able to annex the Ukraine, even a large part of it, uh, that just brings Russia back to the West to a uh, an additional 800 some miles in some cases. And now you're pretty much with Russian troops on the border of many NATO nations. Uh, the Baltic is a, a big concern. You know, the Baltic nations, uh, because that, that makes them right there on the border. Uh, it gives a lot of relief to Russia and a lot of options. So that concerns NATO, but the result is they are coalescing together and they are much more encouraged as a body 
to act now. It's a little bit of an adrenaline shot to what they, uh, what is their mission? What are they about? What's their focus of effort? Uh, sanctions. They are cooperating on the Nord Stream 2, uh, stopping the Nord Stream 2. They're sharing options for fuel. Uh, Italy, over the weekend at the Munich conference, was very concerned. And the prime minister said, I don't, you know, we should take away the energy aspect of this. And uh, the EU uh, prime minister said, uh, a represent, key representative said, we can share that energy. We'll solve this. Uh, NATO will likely and improve their readiness, that is, uh, I should say, their their capacity and their readiness of forces, uh, improve their command and control, could be pushing Finland and Sweden toward more uh, toward membership of NATO. And as I mentioned before, the, in the Baltics, uh, it might help NATO, who has been very hesitant to determine what they view as what we like to say red lines. Uh, in other words, what sort of Russian actions would precipitate reactions by us from the perspective of readiness, stationing of, uh, of NATO forces from outside countries into Baltic nations, and increased exercises. So uh, that that's a maybe a good thing for NATO overall when it looks at what are we about and what is our mission. Uh, China is cautiously optimistic. I mean, anything that distracts or bogs down the U.S. is good for them. But they're a little hesitant on what the what the reaction would be on the global economy. As you know, we're we're global, and uh, even the energy aspect. So they're worried about that. Um, the old element of the enemy of my enemy is my friend uh, seems to be the situation there, and that was a part of the discussion that when we saw President Xi and, and Putin, you know, getting together before the Olympics, it's, they they are now strategic partners. And the question sits out there, uh, isn't this an opportunity for China to to act on Taiwan? I would tell you, uh, people in the know say no. Uh, that would be very un-Chinese. And what I mean by that is they're very, very deliberate and have been for decades on their approach to that challenge, that issue, how they do business, if you will, and, uh, and what they might do. Uh, now, it's hard to say precisely what they would do in that regard, but um, I, I think they will, they would, and will act on Taiwan based on their situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Western Pacific, Taiwan, and and China itself. Uh, North Korea, if anything, uh, you know, he, he needs he's he's worried about uh, famine, keeping the regime stable, uh, and and anything that takes attention away from him, which is which Kim Jong-un has been trying to get with his missile launches, you know, the, the one after another in January and into February. Uh, nobody pays any attention. That's not a good thing. He needs the attention. Um, and Iran, that, that's, a, that's a good question, too. As, as the members at the, uh, the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action Conference or reestablishing those talks have said, uh, we need an answer from Iran by the end of this month because in order for us to go back into useful and uh, coherent negotiations, uh, we need to act now on an agreement because for some time Iran has continued to enrich and the uh, initial conditions of a new agreement, even a new agreement, uh, we will be past that because uh, we've been at this for over a year discussing uh, or just about a year to get back uh, together in the JCPOA.
So, Admiral, you did bring up an interesting point as it pertains to China. Maybe we can pivot over to China for a few moments. And similar to Russia's interests in the Ukraine, we have seen China exercise similar acts of aggression, intimidation towards Taiwan. A few moments ago, you did cite some similarities, some key differences in terms of approach and context of how Russia and China would approach such a move. What are your thoughts on China's intentions towards Taiwan, and is there any indication as to what a timeline might look like for action? Yeah, uh, well, I, I, there are similarities uh, the, between what Russia is doing, what uh, China uh, would do with regard, or is, is doing with regard to Taiwan. Uh, they're both attempting to annex territory that they historically have claimed. Uh, they are both; uh, their intentions are based on. Uh, history and uh, and pre Cold War claims, um, they both ignore the United Nations, but at the same time know they will support each other in the United Nations. They both uh, ignore international laws, sovereignty, and previous agreements. They both currently involve, if you will, hybrid or gray operations. And what I mean is, uh, it, 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 they have avoided direct military confrontation so far. Uh, and they are both uh, attributed really to a singular autocrat or dictator seeking legacy or based on ideology. And what I mean by that is neither Ukraine nor Taiwan has done anything truly uh, of disservice or aggression, uh, historically or otherwise, since uh, China has been um, established, since communist China established. I, I mean, I understand the you know, the revolution and the pre-revolution, the Chiang Kai-shek and all that in the 40s. But since Taiwan, in the, in the last decades, uh, Taiwan hasn't done anything, nor has Ukraine. So it's really about the autocrat. It's hard to say what uh, China will do and when. Um, they will likely do whatever they're going to do when they view success to be there. Uh, they would like to do it with low risk. They would like to do it without a war. It would be economically disastrous to them, to us, to Taiwan. So what have they really gained in that case? Uh, but I think uh, there's a few things going there. Number one, do they have time? Does Xi Jinping have time? This is a key legacy issue for him, a promise to China. Number two, how are things domestically in China? Does he really need to do something now, whenever that now is, because he needs a distraction from a real domestic crisis or set of crises. Or three, and I'd say less likely, has Taiwan done anything or has the U.S. with the Quad done anything where, again, Xi Jinping says, I have to go now or my window is closed. Uh, it all warrants close attention. And I would tell you, Dan, that the status quo in the case of uh, China and Taiwan for the sake of China is not such a bad thing. And then I get back to this thing we call gray zone operations, hybrid operations, a lot of cyber incursions, pressure domestic, uh, diplomatically, excuse me, pressure economically to Taiwan and her neighbors to strip Taiwan of diplomatic uh, partners in any sense. Uh, is a means to an end in its own right uh, by China. Uh, so my point is, it doesn't have to be all-out war. And, and, and China's intention and what they would prefer would be not 
uh, global conflict, if you will, or regional conflict, because you lose control uh, when you go to that kind of uh, action. I think back to a point you brought up a few moments ago. You mentioned how an enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now, in recent time, we have seen the leadership of both Russia and China appear together, whether it be for the purposes of meetings or photo ops. Most recently, what comes to mind is how Russian President Putin appeared at the opening ceremony of the Beijing Winter Games as guest of Premier Xi Jinping. From your vantage point, Admiral, is this all just a function of antagonizing the West, or might there be something deeper at work in the way of strategic collaboration or advancing mutual interests? I understand, historically speaking, that the relationship between Russia and China has not exactly always been friendly, so curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, Dan, that's a, that's a good point, because I think I would tell, have told you uh, maybe 18 months ago, ah, this is just window dressing, but the tangible cooperation uh, outside of just, you know, UN votes, which has been supporting each other on UN votes at the Security Council, veto and or otherwise, uh, has been uh, increasing over time. Um, when one looks at their statement, um, it's a kind of a long onerous thing. And I have to confess, I didn't read the whole thing, but I've read some folks who have laid out what came of the statement that she Jinping and uh, Putin, Vladimir Putin, laid out there at that meeting. One, they declared themselves as strategic partners, and they've never really done that before. Uh, two, they've laid out in pretty good specificity what they find unacceptable about um, actions and intentions of the United States from the perspective of space exploration, um, hypersonic weapons, uh, laser weapons, AI, uh, the use of AI and from military perspective, um, the use of uh, economic means for uh, the United States. Uh, they have stated that the only acceptable future order economically is one that is overseen by China and Russia. And it's like this that goes on. One might say, well, you know, that's not tangible enough. That's true. But on the other hand, or that might be true, on the other hand, they've never done that before. Uh, some say, did we cause this, we the United States, because of the way we've, you know, we've pushed China away since the time we tried to improve relations early in the Obama administration, and we've been kind of pushing Putin away or disregarding him, uh, which is what we were talking about in the first question. You know, he's not happy by the lack of respect in the degradation of Russia. So did we push the two together? And uh, the consensus is that, no, that's really not the case. They have, they have concluded that they have uh, consistent or supporting uh, strategic plans between the two of them. The U.S. is weak enough now. The West is, in fact, declining and distracted with uh, a, a domestic situation which is degrading, you know, the pandemic, the January 6, 2020 situation, and the internal discourse, and their feeling is, look, uh, the time is now. Uh, I was stunned to read this uh, summary that somebody put down. Putin and Xi have met 35 times in the last six years. That's pretty, <laughs> that's a lot. <laughs> and these were dialogues. They weren't sort of, you know, they passed, uh, it wasn't sort of like, you know, President Trump, 
Trump, excuse me, going to Punmunjan and shaking uh, Kim Jong Un's hand that one time. When uh, and that's not a summit. These guys had some fairly substantial, tangible meetings. Well, 35 meetings, that's quite incredible, indicative of something indeed, and it sounds like unprecedented times we live in with respect to the current relationship of Russia and China. So thank you, Admiral, for the insights there. Maybe we can pivot a bit. I was hoping you can weigh in for a few moments on this next topic, acknowledging that we're roughly six months into the post-Afghanistan era in context to U.S. involvement or boots on the ground. Now that some time has passed, Admiral, what are your reflections on the exit, the implications of the decision made, and what kind of role do you believe the U.S. will play in the region going forward? Yeah, that's. A, I think this is a good question for a lot of folks to ask themselves and and how they really feel about it and uh, and maybe go to you know ten thousand feet as we say. When I think about this, uh, Dan, I think about in 2014, President Obama said, "We have completed military operations, U.S.-led military operations in Afghanistan." He said that in 2014. Right after that happened, um, our intelligence resources uh, started uh, going elsewhere. Not all of them, but many of them. We were in a supporting mode only. Uh, the Taliban figured that out and said, hey, wait a minute. This is a holding. They're into a holding position. We, are, we the alliance, were, went defensive. Um, so the moves by the Trump administration, one might say, were not really very strategic from the perspective of we are going to set the stage or we have a strategy where to go. It was to leave. Um, I think we would all agree that was the desire of the American people. Uh, they spoke at the polls uh, and they spoke uh, at voting polls, I should say, and as well as polls taken. Uh, but the question that really wasn't answered in many of these is, okay, we're going to get out, is and then what? You know, what did, what did we foresee? What was our vision? And unfortunately, um, we had a similar situation in Vietnam and Iraq. They're not the same. I'm not implying they're the same. But the, and then what was not clearly answered. So um, as we all know, President Biden was adamant. Uh, it was a campaign pledge that we were going to leave. Uh, what it really came down to is the execution. Uh, for all the reasons of reducing our resources of intelligence, and I mean really deeply embedded intelligence, what is going in and going on in the villages, the provinces? What are the Taliban really going? We didn't have that for many years. It wasn't a failure or anything that recently as much as it was a degradation going on for quite some time. So uh, in, a, in essence, uh, Dan, I think the real lessons learned and understanding is will probably have to come from a, a congressional commission, a bipartisan group, or somebody like that that looks at this from the broader perspective, as opposed to you know what happened when we got out. I think that's one thing that has to be done. Um, I think that when we look in the future, uh, we'll we'll be dealing with a regional problem that will arise periodically. Um, I would say we need to keep our eye on that eastern end of Afghanistan, um, the tribal area. Um, the When we left, uh, particularly when we, the U.S., left in, in numbers, uh, the we, we held down uh, actions by a lot of radical 
radicalized uh, Pakistani groups, uh, those folks are kind of free to move around and, uh, you know, spread their discourse in, in both Pakistan and in, in eastern uh, Afghanistan. So there's a worry about um, how it influences Iranian actions and what Pakistan can do to control these radicals, because remember, Pakistan is a, a nuclear nation, or put another way, a nation with nuclear weapons. Well, Admiral, thank you very much for sharing some reflections. Obviously, a complicated situation which carries with it many implications, in particular within the region. And maybe one more topic we can hit on before we close out our conversation for today, Admiral. And this lends itself to something you brought up a few moments ago, which I found to be interesting. It is, of course, an election year here in the U.S. And there is, of course, a wide range of issues, concerns that will influence how Americans vote at the polls in November. You did mention how last cycle foreign policy might not have been top of mind from the perspective of the American voter. Now that we're here where we are in 2022, Admiral, from your vantage point, where does foreign policy or geopolitics, where does that rank in your view? Um, I think it's pretty low, frankly, Dan, with with the American people. Um, I'm from the western Pennsylvania. It's where I grew up. Um, I get home from time to time. My siblings still live in that area. I have a son lives in Pittsburgh. We go see the grandkids. And you sit around, you just listen to people talk. You look at the local paper. And what you see written more than anything else, given what we would all agree, clearly Ukraine is going to be in the news today. But I would tell you, if, if, any, if things aren't changing that are newsworthy and driven into the headlines, they worry about COVID, jobs, inflation, you know, their economic situation, uh, maybe immigration, uh, the border situation as you move down to the southern part of the United States, uh, and social issues, racism, uh, gender worries, uh, drugs, uh, and civil order. Um, so I think those are the things that will drive our voters uh, unless something rises to the point of where people feel unsecure about things that are going on out there. Uh, and it will be a challenge, I think, for the administration to balance those two. I mean, it, the world gets a vote and will decide. As I mentioned, the Iranian, the, the Joint Comprehensive uh, Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal and what's going on with Iran, uh, is important. Uh, if that's not resolved, then keep your eye on Iran and Israel. And that would just be an, a disaster, right? A war in the Middle East. I mentioned Afghanistan, especially that eastern part uh, involving Pakistan and ISIS and Al Qaeda again. Um, hopefully not, but China and, and the East China Sea and Taiwan. And the, really, I'll, I'll mention the stability of North Korea. Uh, I don't think one needs to be worried about Kim Jong un and North Korea coming across uh, the northern line there into South Korea. Uh, but it's more about the stability of the country, uh, a country that now has nuclear weapons. But the bottom line is um, domestic agenda, I think, will, dic- will continue to dominate. 
Thank you, Admiral, for the insights into how my geopolitics, foreign policy factor into the polls comes November. So, Admiral, I know we're coming to the end of our time together today. Of course, plenty else we could have covered. And looking forward to having you back for a follow-up conversation on the geopolitical space. Though, before we close out today, any final thoughts or takeaways we'd like to leave our listeners and clients? Well, it all sometimes seems like, uh, oh, my gosh, doom and gloom. We've got economic problems, domestic problems. Look what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, as a lot of people have said, a crisis is also an opportunity. And I think um, there's a good opportunity to all of these agreements that I kind of walked through in that first question that are now just seemingly not relevant. Uh, there could be a golden opportunity if NATO, NATO feels good about itself. We have a president that's very comfortable in foreign policy uh, to uh, get this situation, sit down with Putin, with Russia, uh, and go into kind of a Helsinki 2.0, some would say, uh, to establish what is the acceptable lay down, uh, understanding that our, our, we're not pure and what we did in the 90s and what we told the Soviet Union we were going to do at the end of the Cold War. So there's an opportunity there, I think, uh, and I hope we take advantage of it. Well, Admiral Greener, you have been very generous with your time and the insight you have shared with us, our listeners, our clients today. It comes at a very timely moment as many of us seek perspective on what has unfolded, in particular within Eastern Europe, and what might come next. So, pleasure speaking with you today, Admiral Greener, and hope you can join us again. Thank you, Dan. It's been my pleasure. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities, or views stated herein. Any specific security Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements it is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC. 